Chapter Three of A Man of Means. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. A Man of Means by P. G. Woodhouse and C. H. Boville. The episode of the theatrical venture. It was one of those hard, nubbly rolls. The best restaurants charge you sixpence for having the good sense not to eat them. It hit Roland Bleak, with considerable vehemence, on the bridge of the nose. For a moment Roland fancied that the roof of the Regent Grill-room must have fallen in, and as this would automatically put an end to the party, he was not altogether sorry. He had never been to a theatrical supper-party before, and within five minutes of his arrival at the present one he had become afflicted with an intense desire never to go to a theatrical supper-party again. To be a success at these gay gatherings one must possess dash, and Roland, whatever his other sterling qualities, was a little short of dash. The young man on the other side of the table was quite nice about it. While not actually apologizing, he went so far as to explain that it was old Jerry, whom he had had in his mind when he'd started the roll on its course. After a glance at old Jerry, a chinless child of about nineteen, Roland felt that it would be churlish to be angry with the young man whose intentions had been so wholly admirable. Old Jerry had one of those faces in which any alteration even the comparatively limited one which a role would be capable of producing was bound to be for the better. He smiled, a sickly smile, and said that it didn't matter. The charming creature who sat on his assailant's left, however, took a more serious view of the situation. "'Sidney, you make me tired,' she said severely. "'If I had thought you didn't know how to act like a gentleman,' I wouldn't have come here with you. Go away somewhere, and throw bread at yourself, and ask Mr. Bleak to come and sit by me. I want to talk to him." That was Roland's first introduction to Miss Billy Veerpoint. "'I've been wanting to have a chat with you all evening, Mr. Bleak,' she said, as Roland blushingly sank into the empty chair. "'I've heard such a lot about you.' What Miss Veerpoint had heard about Roland was that he had two hundred thousand pounds, and apparently did not know what to do with it. In fact, if I hadn't been told that you would be here, I shouldn't have come to this party. I can't stand these gatherings of nuts in May, as a general rule. They bore me stiff." Roland hastily revised his first estimate of the theatrical profession. Shallow, empty-headed creatures some of them might be, no doubt, but there were exceptions. Here was a girl of real discernment, a thoughtful student of character, a girl who understood that a man might sit at a supper-party without uttering a word, and might still be a man of parts. I'm afraid you'll think me very outspoken, but that's me all over. All my friends say, Billy Veerpoint's a funny girl. If she likes anyone, she just tells them so, straight out and if she doesn't like anyone, she tells them straight out, too." "'And a very admirable trait,' said Roland, enthusiastically. 
Miss Verepoint sighed. Perhaps it is, she said pensively, but I'm afraid it's what has kept me back in my profession. Managers don't like it. They think girls should be seen and not heard. Roland's blood boiled. Managers were plainly a dastardly crew. But what's the good of worrying? went on Miss Verepoint with a brave but hollow laugh. Of course it's wearing having to wait when one has got as much ambition as I have. But they all tell me that my chance is bound to come some day. The intense mournfulness of Miss Verepoint's expression seemed to indicate that she anticipated the arrival of the desired day not less than sixty years hence. Roland was profoundly moved. His chivalrous nature was up in arms. He fell to wondering if he could do anything to help this victim of managerial unfairness. "'You don't mind my going on about my troubles, do you?' asked Miss Verepoint solicitously. "'One so seldom meets anybody really sympathetic.' Roland babbled fervent assurances, and she pressed his hand gratefully. "'I wonder if you would care to come to tea one afternoon,' she said. "'Oh, rather!' said Roland. He would have liked to put it in a more polished way, but he was almost beyond speech. "'Of course I know what a busy man you are. No, no! Well, I should be in tomorrow afternoon, if you cared to look in.' Roland bleated gratefully. "'I'll write down the address for you,' said Miss Verepoint, suddenly businesslike. Exactly when he committed himself to the purchase of the Windsor Theatre, Roland could never say. The idea seemed to come into existence fully grown, without preliminary discussion. One moment it was not, the next it was. His recollections of the afternoon, which he spent drinking lukewarm tea, and punctuating Miss Verepoint's flow of speech with yeses and noes, were always so thoroughly confused that he never knew even whose suggestion it was. The purchase of a West End theatre, when one has the necessary cash, is not nearly such a complicated business as the layman might imagine. Roland was staggered by the rapidity with which the transaction was carried through. The theatre was his before he had time to realise that he had never meant to buy the thing at all. He had gone into the offices of Mr. Montague with the intention of making an offer for the lease for, say, six months, and that wizard, in a space of less than an hour, had not only induced him to sign mysterious documents which made him sole proprietor of the house, but had left him with the feeling that he had done an extremely acute stroke of business. Mr. Montague had dabbled in many professions in his time, from street-peddling upward, but what he was really best at was hypnotism. Although he felt, after the spell of Mr. Montague's magnetism was withdrawn, rather like a nervous man who has been given a large baby to hold by a strange woman, who has promptly vanished round the corner, Roland was to some extent consoled by the praise bestowed upon him by Miss Verepoint. She said it was much better to buy a theatre than to rent it, because then you escaped the heavy rent. It was specious, but Roland had a dim feeling that there was a flaw 
somewhere in the reasoning and it was from this point that a shadow may be said to have fallen upon the brightness of the venture he would have been even less self-congratulatory if he had known the Windsor Theatre's reputation being a comparative stranger in the metropolis he was unaware that its nickname in theatrical circles was the Muggs Graveyard a title which had been bestowed upon it not without reason built originally by a slightly insane old gentleman whose principal delusion was that the public was pining for a constant supply of the higher drama and more especially those specimens of the higher drama which flowed practically without cessation from the restless pen of the insane old gentleman himself the Windsor Theatre had passed from hand to hand with the agility of a gold watch in a gathering of racecourse thieves the one anxiety of the unhappy man who found himself by some accident in possession of the Windsor Theatre was to pass it on to somebody else the only really permanent tenant it ever had was the representative of the official receiver various causes were assigned for the phenomenal ill luck of the theatre but undoubtedly the vital objection to it as a temple of drama lay in the fact that nobody could ever find the place where it was hidden cabmen shook their heads on the rare occasions when they were asked to take a fare there explorers to whom a stroll through the australian bush was child's play have been known to spend an hour on its trail and finish up at the point where they started it was precisely this quality of elusiveness which had first attracted mr montague he was a far-seeing man and to him the topographical advantages of the theatre were enormous it was further from a fire station than any other building of the same insurance value in london even without having regard to the mystery which enveloped its whereabouts often after a good dinner he would lean comfortably back in his chair and see in the smoke of his cigar a vision of the windsor theatre blazing merrily while distracted firemen galloped madly all over london vainly endeavouring to get someone to direct them to the scene of the conflagration so mr montague bought the theatre for a mere song and prepared to get busy unluckily for him the representatives of the various fire offices with which he had effected his policies got busy first the generous fellows insisted upon taking off his shoulders the burden of maintaining the fireman whose permanent presence in a theatre is required by law nothing would satisfy them but to install firemen of their own and pay their salaries this to a man in whom the instincts of the phoenix were so strongly developed as they were in mr montague was distinctly disconcerting he saw himself making no profit on the deal a thing which had never happened to him before and then roland bleak occurred and mr montague's belief that his race was really chosen was restored he sold the windsor theatre to roland for twenty five thousand pounds it was fifteen thousand pounds more than he himself had given for it and this very satisfactory profit mitigated the slight regret 
which he felt when it came to transferring to Roland the insurance policies. To have effected policies amounting to rather more than seventy thousand pounds on a building so notoriously valueless as the Windsor Theatre had been an achievement of which Mr. Montague was justly proud, and it seemed sad to him that so much earnest endeavour should be thrown away. Over the little lunch with which she kindly allowed Roland to entertain her to celebrate the purchase of the theatre, Miss Veerpoint outlined her policy. "'What we must put up at the theatre,' she announced, "'is a review—a review,' repeated Miss Pierpoint, making as she spoke little calculations on the back of the menu. "'We could run for about fifteen hundred a week, or, say, two thousand. Saying two thousand, thought Roland to himself, is not quite the same as paying two thousand. So why should she stint herself? I know two boys who could write us a topping review, said Miss Veerpoint. They'd spread themselves, too, if it was for me. They're in love with me, both of them. We'd better get in touch with them at once. To Roland there seemed to be something just the least bit sinister about the sound of that word touch, but he said nothing. "'Why, there they are, lunching over there!' cried Miss Veerpoint, pointing to a neighbouring table. "'Now isn't that lucky?' To Roland the luck was not quite so apparent, but he made no demure to Miss Veerpoint's suggestion that they should be brought over to their table. The two boys, as to whose capabilities to write a topping review Miss Veerpoint had formed so optimistic an estimate, proved to be well-grown lads of about forty-five and forty, respectively. Of the two, Roland thought that perhaps R. P. de Paris was a shade the more obnoxious, but a closer inspection left him with the feeling that these fine distinctions were a little unfair with men of such equal talents. Bromham Rhodes ran his friend so close that it was practically a dead heat. They were both fat and somewhat bulgy-eyed. This was due to the fact that what review-writing exacts from its exponents is a constant assimilation of food and drink. Bromham Rhodes had the largest appetite in London, but on the other hand R. P. de Paris was a better drinker. "'Well, dear old thing,' said Bromham Rhodes. "'Well, old child,' said R. P. de Paris. Both these remarks were addressed to Miss Veerpoint. The talented pair appeared to be unaware of Roland's existence. Miss Veerpoint struck the business note. "'Now you stop, boys,' she said. "'Tie weights to yourselves and sink down into those chairs. I want you two lads to write a review for me.' "'Delighted,' said Bromham Rhodes. "'But—' "'There is the trifling point to be raised first, said R. P. de Paris. "'Where is the money coming from?' said Bromham Rhodes. "'My friend Mr. Bleak is putting up the money,' said Miss Veerpoint, with dignity. "'He has taken the Windsor Theatre.' The interest of the two authors in their host, till then languid, increased with a jerk. "'Has he, by Jove!' they cried. "'We must get together and talk this over.' It was Roland's first experience of a theatrical talking over and he never forgot it. Two such talkers-over as Bromham Rhodes and R. P. de Paris were scarcely to be found in the length and breadth of theatrical London. Nothing, it seemed, could the gifted pair even begin to think of doing, without first discussing the proposition in all its aspects. 
the amount of food which Roland found himself compelled to absorb during the course of these debates was appalling. Discussions which began at lunch would be continued until it was time to order dinner, and then, as likely as not, they would have to sit there till supper-time in order to thrash the question thoroughly out. The collection of a cast was a matter even more complicated than the actual composition of the review. There was the almost insuperable difficulty that Miss Veerpoint firmly vetoed every name suggested. It seemed practically impossible to find any man or woman in all England or America whose peculiar gifts or lack of them would not interfere with Miss Veerpoint's giving a satisfactory performance of the principal role. It was all very perplexing to Roland, but as Miss Veerpoint was an expert in theatrical matters, he scarcely felt entitled to question her views. It was about this time that Roland proposed to Miss Veerpoint. The passage of time and the strain of taking over the review had to a certain extent moderated his original fervour. He had shaded off from a passionate devotion, through various diminishing tints of regard for her, into a sort of pale sunset glow of affection. His principal reason for proposing was that it seemed to him to be in the natural order of events. Her air towards him had become distinctly proprietorial. She now called him roly-poly in public, a proceeding which left him with mixed feelings. Also she had taken to ordering him about, which, as everybody knows, is an unmistakable sign of affection among ladies of the theatrical profession. Finally, in his chivalrous way, Roland had begun to feel a little apprehensive, lest he might be compromising Miss Veerpoint. Everybody knew that he was putting up the money for the review in which she was to appear. They were constantly seen together at restaurants. People looked arch when they spoke to him about her. He had to ask himself, was he behaving like a perfect gentleman? The answer was in the negative. He took a cab to her flat and proposed before he could repent of his decision. She accepted him. He was not certain for a moment whether he was glad or sorry. "'But I don't want to get married,' she went on, "'until I have justified my choice of a profession. You will have to wait until I have made a success in this review.' Roland was shocked to find himself hugely relieved at this concession. The review took shape. There did apparently exist a handful of artistes to whom Miss Veerpoint had no objection, and these, a scrubby but confident lot, were promptly engaged. Sallow Americans sprang from nowhere with songs, dances, and ideas for effects. Tousled-haired scenic artists wandered in with model scenes under their arms. A great cloud of chorus ladies settled upon the theatre like flies. Even Bromham Rhodes and R. P. de Paris, those human pythons, showed signs of activity. They cornered Roland one day near Swan and Edgar's, steered him into the Piccadilly grill-room, and, over a hearty lunch, read him extracts from a brown-paper-covered manuscript, which they informed him was the first act. It looked a battered sort of manuscript, and indeed it had every right to be. Under various titles and at various times, 
Bromham Rhodes and R.P. de Paris first act had been refused by practically every responsible manager in London. As Oh What a Life it had failed to satisfy the directors of the Empire. Rechristened Wow Wow it had been rejected by the Alhambra. The Hippodrome had refused to consider it even under the name of Hallo Cellarflap. It was now called Pass Along Please and according to its authors was a real review. Roland was to learn as the days went on that in the world in which he was moving everything was real review that was not a stunt or a corking effect. He floundered in a sea of real review, stunts and corking effects. As far as he could gather the main difference between these things was that real review was something which had been stolen from some previous English production, whereas a stunt or a corking effect was something which had been looted from New York. A judicious blend of these, he was given to understand, constituted the sort of thing the public wanted. Rehearsals began before, in Roland's opinion, his little army was properly supplied with ammunition. True, they had the first act, but even the authors agreed that it wanted bringing up to date in parts. They explained that it was, in a manner of speaking, their life work, that they had actually started it about ten years ago, when they were careless lads. Inevitably it was spotted here and there with smart topical hits of the early years of the century, but that, they said, would be all right. They could freshen it up in a couple of evenings. It was simply a matter of deleting allusions to pro-bores and substituting lines about Marconi shares and mangle wurzels. It'll be all right, they assured Roland. This is real review. In times of trouble there is always a point at which one may say, Here is the beginning of the end. This point came with Roland at the commencement of the rehearsals. Till then he had not fully realized the terrible nature of the production for which he had made himself responsible. Moreover, it was rehearsals which gave him his first clear insight into the character of Miss Veerpoint. Miss Veerpoint was not at her best at rehearsals. For the first time as he watched her, Roland found himself feeling that there was a case to be made out for the managers who had so consistently kept her in the background. Miss Veerpoint, to use the technical term, threw her weight about. There were not many good lines in the script of Act One of Pass Along, Please, but such as there were, she reached out for and grabbed away from their owners, who retired into corners, scowling and muttering like dogs robbed of bones. She snubbed everybody, Roland included. Roland sat in the cold darkness of the stalls and watched her, panic-stricken. Like an icy wave it had swept over him. What marriage with this girl would mean? He suddenly realized how essentially domestic his instincts really were. Life with Miss Veerpoint would mean perpetual dinners at restaurants, bread-throwing suppers, motor rides, everything that he hated most. Yet as a man of honor he was tied to her. If the review was a success she would marry him, and reviews he knew were always successes. At that very moment there were six best reviews in London running at various theatres. 
he shuddered at the thought that in a few weeks there would be seven. He felt a longing for rural solitude. He wanted to be alone by himself for a day or two in a place where there were no papers with advertisements of reviews, no grill-rooms, and above all, no Miss Billy Veerpoint. That night he stole away to a Norfolk village, where in happier days he had once spent a summer holiday, a peaceful, primitive place, where the inhabitants could not have told real review from a corking effect. Here, for the space of a week, Roland lay in hiding, whilst his quivering nerves gradually recovered tone. He returned to London, happier, but a little apprehensive. Beyond a brief telegram of farewell, he had not communicated with Miss Veerpoint for seven days, and experience had made him aware that she was a lady who demanded an adequate amount of attention. That his nervous system was not wholly restored to health was borne in upon him as he walked along Piccadilly on his way to his flat. For when somebody suddenly slapped him hard between the shoulder-blades, he uttered a stifled yell and leaped in the air. Turning to face his assailant, he found himself meeting the genial gaze of Mr. Montague, his predecessor in the ownership of the Windsor Theatre. Mr. Montague was effusively friendly, and for some mysterious reason congratulatory. "'You've done it, have you? You pulled it off, did you? And in the first month, by George! And I took you for a plain ordinary mug of commerce. My boy, you're as deep as they make em. Who'd have thought it to look at you?' It was the greatest idea anyone ever had, and staring me in the face all the time, and I never saw it. But I don't grudge it to you. You deserve it, my boy. You're a nut. I really don't know what you mean. Quite right, my boy, clucked Mr. Montague. You're quite right to keep it up, even among friends. It don't do to risk anything, and least said soonest men did. He went on his way, leaving Roland completely mystified. Voices from his sitting-room, among which he recognized the high note of Miss Veerpoint, reminded him of the ordeal before him. He entered with what he hoped was a careless ease of manner, but his heart was beating fast. Since the opening of rehearsals he had acquired a wholesome respect for Miss Veerpoint's tongue. She was sitting in his favorite chair. There were also present Bromham Rhodes and R. P. de Paris who had made themselves completely at home with a couple of his cigars and whisky from the oldest bin. "'So here you are at last,' said Miss Veerpoint, querulously. "'The valet told us you were expected back this morning, so we waited. Where on earth have you been to, running away like this without a word?' "'I only went—' "'Well, it doesn't matter where you went. The main point is, what are you going to do about it?' "'We thought we'd better come along and talk it over,' said R. P. de Paris. Talk what over? said Roland. The review? Oh, don't try and be funny, for goodness sake! snapped Miss Veerpoint. It doesn't suit you. You haven't the right shape of head. What do you suppose we want to talk over? The theatre, of course. What about the theatre? Miss Veerpoint looked searchingly at him. Don't you ever read the papers? I haven't seen a paper since I went away. Well, better have it quick and not waste time breaking it gently, said Miss Veerpoint. The theatre's been burned down. That's what's happened. Burned down? Burned down? repeated Roland. That's what I said, didn't I? The suffragettes did it. They left copies of Votes for Women about the place. The silly asses set fire to two other theatres as well. 
and they happened to be in main thoroughfares, and the fire brigade got them under control at once. I suppose they couldn't find the Windsor. Anyhow, it's burnt to the ground, and what we want to know is what you're going to do about it. Roland was much too busy blessing the good angels of Kingsway to reply at once. R.P. de Paris, sympathetic soul, placed a wrong construction on his silence. Poor old Roly, he said. It's quite broken him up. The best thing we can do is all go off and talk it over at the Savoy, over a bit of lunch. Well, said Miss Veerpoint, what are you going to do? Rebuild the Windsor or try to get another theatre? The authors were all for rebuilding the Windsor. True, it would take time, but it would be more satisfactory in every way. Besides, at this time of the year it would be no easy matter to secure another theatre at a moment's notice. To R.P. de Paris and Bromham Rhodes, the destruction of the Windsor Theatre had appeared less in the light of a disaster than as a direct intervention on the part of Providence. The completion of that tiresome second act, which had brooded over their lives like an ugly cloud, could now be postponed indefinitely. Of course, said R.P. de Paris, thoughtfully, our contract with you makes it obligatory on you to produce our review by a certain date. But I dare say, Bromham, we could meet Rowley there, couldn't we? Sure, said Rhodes. Something nominal, say a further five hundred on account of fees, would satisfy us. I certainly think it would be better to rebuild the Windsor, don't you, R.P.? I do, agreed R.P. de Paris cordially. You see, Rowley, our review has been written to fit the Windsor. It would be very difficult to alter it for production in another theatre. Yes, I feel that rebuilding the Windsor would be your best course. There was a pause. What do you think, Roly-Poly? asked Miss Veerpoint, as Roland made no sign. Nothing would delight me more than to rebuild the Windsor, or to take another theatre, or to do anything else to oblige. He said, cheerfully, Unfortunately, I have no more money to burn. It was as if a bomb had suddenly exploded in the room. A dreadful silence fell upon his hearers. For the moment no one spoke. R.P. de Paris woke with a start out of a beautiful dream of prawn curry, and Bromham Rhodes forgot that he had not tasted food for nearly two hours. Miss Veerpoint was the first to break the silence. "'Do you mean to say,' she gasped, "'that you didn't insure the place?' Roland shook his head. The particular form in which Miss Veerpoint had put the question entitled him, he felt, to make this answer. "'Why didn't you?' Miss Veerpoint's tone was almost menacing. "'Because it did not appear to me to be necessary.' "'Nor was it necessary,' said Roland to his conscience. "'Mr. Montague had done all the insuring that was necessary, and a bit over.' Miss Veerpoint fought with her growing indignation, and lost. "'What about the salaries of the people who have been rehearsing all this time?' she demanded. "'I'm sorry that they should be out of an engagement, but it's scarcely my fault. However, I propose to give each of them a month's salary. I can manage that, I think.' Miss Veerpoint rose. "'And what about me? What about me? That's what I want to know. Where do I get off? If you think I'm going to marry you without your getting a theatre and putting up this review, you're jolly well mistaken.' Roland made a gesture which was intended to convey regret and resignation. He even contrived to sigh. "'Very well, then,' said Miss Veerpoint. 
rightly interpreting this behaviour as his final pronouncement on the situation. Then everything's jolly well off. She swept out of the room, the two authors following in her wake like porpoises behind a liner. Roland went to his bureau, unlocked it, and took out a bundle of documents. He let his fingers stray lovingly among the fire insurance policies which the energetic Mr. Montague had been at such pains to secure from so many companies. And so, he said softly to himself, am I. End of chapter 3 The episode of the theatrical venture Read by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org